Hello and welcome to the new season of the Colibri Games podcast. Uh, I am your host, Nate Barker, and today we are joined with two awesome guests who are also Colibris and are going to talk to us a little bit about the amazing world of game design. So I guess without further ado, uh, we have Boris Heiser, who is our lead game designer here at Colibri Games. Um, and we also have Bjorn Sauna, who is the senior game designer at Colibri Games. And uh, it's lovely to have both of you guys here today. Thank you for joining us and taking a little time out of your day. Um, howdy. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having us. Hi. Thanks for my side as well. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining. So today we're going to talk about game design. We're going to go into some of the ins and outs of what game design is, how one becomes a game designer, uh, what constitutes a well-designed game, um, and also what makes Colibri different when it comes to game design. Um, and so I know we have a lot of people who are listening who probably come from all different levels of experience in terms of what their knowledge and background is around game design. So uh, I think we want to keep some of the newbies in mind a little bit um, who might be listening to this and perhaps in other industries and just trying to learn a little bit more about how games work. Um, but also um, there's definitely some folks who, who are pretty well versed. So we'll try and cover a lot of ground here. First, we'll zoom out a little bit and uh, talk about what is game design and what is game design not? <laughs> okay, maybe I give it a go. Um, game design, it's pretty easy. It's everything. Um, everything that can be a game. You can go back to what actually is a game. What is the purpose of a game? can be entertainment to just kill time. It can have an educational purpose, like serious games, but it can also have a motivational purpose. And there's where, for example, we have gamification, what we use, for example, in schools. And then game design is actually making those rules. So everything you see in a game, everything you can touch, someone needed to come up with those rules. This is game design. Let's take a look at chess, for example, the board game chess. Everybody knows chess, right? There needs to be someone back in the days who said, okay, this is the board. This is how it should look like. This can be played by two people. Uh, those are the figures. This is how they move. This is the mechanic. This more or less is game design. Yeah. Also to add a little more and clarify a little bit more. So basically the core essence of it is that whatever, every restriction and everything that's allowed and everything that's restricted within a game is basically the job of a game designer to decide. Everything you can do in a game has been decided by a game designer. We call them game mechanics, basically. So all the mechanics, which are the rules of the games, are decided by the designer and then um, implemented by other people, uh, Like if you are in a bigger team, that is. So what game design a lot of times not is, for example, is a lot of times you are you may or may not be as involved in, for example, the art creation, or you may or may not be as much involved into the um, code, the, like the code of the game directly, because in bigger companies it is, at least oftentimes this is taken care of by other people. But aside of you not necessarily knowing like how these things are implemented, you still have to keep a vision of them, because like even the theme of it, of the game someone has to hold the idea in their mind, like what a theme of the game should be, what are we targeting, what's the direction, because, and all of this is also held by the game designer. So it's really more about the um, systems, rules, and tools that are available to the player, and less so about like art or um, like cosmetic decisions. Mostly, yes. So I think there's, there's some extent to um, the cosmetic decisions, because like, 
they have to fit with the theme you're going for. Like if, for example, if you want to like transfer a message about living in a post-apocalyptic world, like for example, let's take an example of Metro Exodus, right? So if you have like this post-apocalyptic Russian world after like a fallout uh, scenario, you do not want there to be a lot of happy happy faces and uh, bright colors and stuff like that. You still want to keep in mind the setting you are set in and the feeling that you as a designer want the player to experience. And therefore you have a certain amount of influence on what kind of feeling should it basically convey to the player. I think the involvement also depends on the company, how much a designer is involved. We are usually the vision keepers of, as Björn just said, how the game should feel. Let's say we have a pirate space game. Then, of course, you need to make mood boards and say, okay, this is how we envision it. But how exactly they are modeled or drawn by the artist, this is the job of the artist. But we need to give the first framework what is possible, what is necessary. And so are you like day to day, what are you working in? Like um, uh, spreadsheets, whiteboards, like what is, what does it actually mean to be creating these rules? Uh, is it, is it like a bunch of slides? Are, are you just recording them into a tape recorder and throwing that at the, <laughs> the engineers? <laughs> mm -hmm. Very good question. Um, first of all, disclaimer, I think, what a game designer is doing on a daily basis really depends on a company and the project because there are certain needs. Let's say if you have, uh, uh, like we are working on idle games, right? Uh, so here, yes, you are on day to day more working on, on uh, balancing in Excel sheets and spreadsheets. It's a very numbers driven game, right? But what we are, for example, not doing is level design. This would be more interesting, let's say, in a jump and run game where you actually need it. So it really depends on a project what you're doing, and also on the phase of the project. Let's say you kick off a project, you are more in prototyping to find out new mechanics, new themes, new chores, maybe developing. So more the creative high-level part. And then at some point when a project is kicking off the implementation phase, yes, then you're making the hard work, the low-level design of entering those numbers, the balancing, um, the testing, and so on, working re really closely, supportive with everybody else that is connected like um, showing the artist what your vision is of how the space pirate game should look like, uh, talking to programmers, to developers and say, hey, this is how it should behave. Uh, what can we do to, to implement it? So my next question is, how do you get into game design as a career? Maybe we could start with uh, you, Bjorn, because I think you, you went to school for this, right? Yeah, so, um, so in my case, I basically studied it for three years. We were doing the during those three years, you do a lot of projects. So you basically already work on projects. So you also have them and uh, have some material for your portfolio. And in my case, I just applied to a lot, a lot, a lot of companies and kind of ended up at Columbia at some point. That's actually the most of it for me. I just studied it. Unfortunately, you can't study it like publicly yet. There's only one uh, school, as far as I know, here in Berlin that actually has it as a public. Um, study course that you can do. So it's um, state funded. Otherwise, you actually have to study a private right now, which can be quite expensive um, as you are three years of involvement. So that's a lot of um, tuition fees. But aside from that, 
yeah, you study it, you apply. If you have trouble even after studying it to uh, take my company, it is always good to like expand your portfolio and basically get a little bit more that people can actually see in order uh, to basically evaluate your skills when you apply somewhere. But aside from that, it's basically just up to how good you are and how good you can present yourself. And so I noticed... Um... You know, so I, I did peek at your portfolio and I noticed that um, a lot of the stuff in there, it covers like a big range of different um, uh, type of game design, right? There's like board games, um, there's platformers, um, there was a first person shooter, um, no idle stuff, which I assume is because it's such a, like a niche thing that um, it's not something that most game design, um, you know, schools are going to actually cover. Did you find that um, your studies still were applicable to what you do today, um, or was it completely different from what you're actually doing day to day? No, so I, I think it's very applicable because, like in the, in the essence, creating a game is a similar process all the time because you have a certain role to play within designing a game, and the studies are basically there to teach you the basics of a game. What is a game? What is essential for a game? What makes a game fun? And what is your role as a game designer within a larger team? Because like you're not there to basically control everything. You're there to um, guide everybody into the right direction, every, get everybody towards the vision. And that is basically, um, that's, that's basically what you learn during your studies. And that's what you mainly study for. In our case, actually, the, the themes of the games are actually like the, the genres of the games are also set in stone. So we basically were working on this. It was a board game that was basically free to us, um, or it was the physical game, because it was good to start on a physical level first, as the principles that apply in the end are the same, yet the production time is way quicker and way shorter. So you can get experience faster and then we transitioned into some first simple games which were in our case uh we did the jump run so your first video game basically and then we um went into serious game where we basically did an adoption of like you were hacking into a server and then figuring out uh, like it's our first person stealth perspective game and you're hacking into a server and basically figure out um that you're currently stealing private data and it kind of tries to put you into the moral conflict if you should be really doing this or not. Boris, I, I'd like to know um, a little bit about how you arrived at uh, Calibri. So you've you've gone to a few different game studios. So you have maybe a little bit more range um, in terms of you know the types of studios you've seen and the, the experience. And um, tell me a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. um, I think Bjorn already gave a small preview, like getting your foot into the gaming industry is not that easy. Um, did, and did you go to a gaming school? I went to a public school, the uh, University of Applied Sciences in Augsburg, Bavaria. And the study course was called the Interactive Media. There I got my bachelor and master's in arts. And this was more like actually a split between 50% programming and 50% art. So my range was wider in that I always knew already as a kid, I want to do something with games. Um, and during the course of the study, I realized, oh yeah, there's a thing called game design. I want to do that. I applied to companies. I got lucky to, to work on my very first project called Angry Birds Epic. So already working on a bigger IP where you can have a lot of fun and try out a lot of things and learn a lot. And yeah, that's now over eight years ago. So being a game designer for eight years, always in a mobile gaming industry and um, ending up at, in Colibri was more like um, over the course of a game designer, you also ask yourself, okay, uh, do you want to specialize? Do you want to become a lead? 
And Colibri just gave me the opportunity to just expand my knowledge also as a lead game designer. So there's more people management in there. And this is how I um, arrived at Colibri Games. And did, did you find that Colibri was in any ways different from um, the other studios? Oh, yes, in, in, in many ways. Well, there are typical uh, parameters like the size. My first company was around 30 people. When I joined back in the days, Colibri Games, we were around 100 people with already big growth. So already big level of professionalization, processes, knowledge. Um, the biggest difference, I would say, is the agile environment we're working on. Like we have weekly or two-week sprints, um, a very iterative process. We try to achieve a maximum level of player centricity so that we are listening to the community. And this, I would say, I'm not saying that the other companies I work with didn't do that, but the level we are doing it here at Colibri Games is, is rather high, I would say. So one thing I, I want to ask, um, and this stems from something that uh, Bjorn was saying, is what, what actually makes games fun? Like you said, we want to make it fun, but what, what actually makes them fun? <laughs> Two words or less. <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're trying me for two words or less, then I would say decision-making. So now it's Boris's turn. <laughs> okay, then, then I go also with a short answer. Um, easy to learn, hard to master. So um, I think it, it taps to give you a longer answer. I think it taps into like there are different gamers, right? A completionist, you're more competitive, like the killer and so on. So first of all, you want to satisfy those needs. I mean, yes, as Björn said, within those games, then there's decision-making. Um, and again, as I said at the beginning, the role, why are you playing? Like, do you want to just kill time? Like after work, you just want to vent maybe, and then everything can make fun. If you play the wrong game at the wrong time, maybe it is a brilliant game, but it's the wrong time, then it doesn't make fun at all. Yeah, also to elaborate a little bit more on, on, on my statement. So basically... What, what, what we experience as fun is basically the, the exercise to make decisions and see their outcome in a safe environment. So if you make a decision in real life, it immediately is going to impact your life. But what we really like about games, like the, the depth of games, is if you can make a decision, see the outcome. And if it was a bad outcome, it's not going to directly affect you. Yet you still learn from that experience that you basically had in your game. And that is one of the core elements that make games fun because our brains really enjoy making decisions and learning what happens out of them. And that is basically the main utilization that we have in games. You're prominently making decisions, even in a shooter, where you're just like, even in any FPS shooter, that you're just running around and shooting people. You always have to decide where do you look, where do you shoot, do I have the time to react, what weapon do I use? And all these kind of decisions is basically what makes game as fun as So, So to piggyback off that, what would you say is like a, a well-designed game? So for my, for my perspective, a well-designed game is a game that facilitates these kind of decisions on a very frequent basis with different intensities. So you want to have very small decisions you're, ma decisions you're making at very frequent intervals. Your brain should be busy the entire time. And we, for example, we even use, utilize that in IMT where you are upgrading something and you already have the decision what to upgrade. But even after you upgrade now, your bottleneck might shift. So you reiterate on that question the entire time what you should be actually upgrading. Because every time you actually do something, that question reoccurs and that question reoccurs, which basically means you're always in the decision-making process. And then in longer intervals, you have like bigger decisions, which would be like, 
for example, in the case of IMT, which man should I be playing? I'm, I have some skill points, where do I spend them? And that is basically what is the modest strategy aspect of the game, while the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay is more the pure skill aspect, basically, of the game. And if you are able to create these meaningful decisions frequently and um, have some recurring in your game, then it's basically what I see it makes it great. And adding to the decision-making, after decision-making also, there usually come rewards. So you feel satisfied and the intervals are just shorter, not like in real life, right? Where you need to work for a whole month to get your salary, to buy cool things. Games are so fun to play because you get way faster positive feedback as either in skill, because you're now faster in shooting and better and winning, or just earning more money to build more stuff in your games. So the, the reward loop after the decision-making also. Uh, makes a game fun and well-designed. Um, and on the um, the note, uh, Bjorn, I'm glad you brought up uh, Idle Miner Tycoon. And this is something we talked about a little bit earlier, but when you're looking at idle games um, from the perspective of game design, what makes them different from other, uh, what makes idle game design different from other game design? The difference uh, in game design for idle games, I think it's the active gameplay. Most of the games involve active gameplay to play the game. Uh, designing a game that by definition says, okay, you define features, mechanics uh, that are intended to not be played for a certain amount of time. So you play Idle Miner Tycoon for a certain amount of time, and you need to have an environment where you actually feel good about putting it away, not playing it, and then coming back and feeling good of coming back. So this is different to yeah, create something for an offline mode. Yeah, so from my perspective, it would be mostly, like it kind of ties into what both already mentioned. It's mostly the pacing of the game. Well, because like you have obviously your more traditional games that are like meant to be played in an entirety of like at best 60 hours or something, um, which is already a very extensive game. But like idle games are there to basically keep you engaged for way, way, way longer time than that. And you obviously have the aspect of being idle, but then you come back and your session still has to feel good. Like every moment has to feel good and you have these permanent progression loops that you basically consider. Because an idle game is basically already the first meta level of gameplay where usually you have like your gameplay and you have meta gameplay that basically is a re uh, resolves around that. And that would, for example, be a skill tree. While IMT also has a skill tree, it's actually one meta level higher. Because usually managing each individual um, person within an ID simulation, for example, could be a core gameplay, but that basically gets skipped directly for the progression loop. Like in, for example, Candy Crush, playing a match is your core gameplay and progressing on the map would be your first meta gameplay. While idle simulation games basically skip that core gameplay completely and immediately jump to the entire progression loop. It's like progressing a station is the progression and progressing in mind is your main progression. So um, you basically skip that first part and then the main difficulty is obviously facilitating the decision-making, as I mentioned earlier, within that first meta loop of gameplay. Since we're on the subject of um, mobile games. And since um, for both you guys, um, your career has been dominated by mobile. Is mobile game design easier than designing for consoles or PC? Short answer, no. 
it's just different. It's like with every uh, game you design for a platform, you could also ask, is it easy to make a board game because it's physical, because you can touch it? Um, I would say for me personally, it's not easier. It's actually more challenging and more exciting because there's so much happening in the mobile games market, in the free-to-play market, technology, the devices are getting strongest. Um, more and more genres, actually there are more new genres built and created, like idle games didn't exist for for some years right and then they suddenly popped up so it's like the new frontier and therefore i think definitely not easier definitely uh very exciting and for your day-to-day jobs um we talked about this a little bit in terms of the tools that you're using are you guys using data um uh, to to dictate your game design choices uh luckily yes we have access to data data has a very important role um, I personally always perceived game design or game development as this GDC. So it's based on three areas, uh, gut feeling, data, and community. So you hear data already, data-driven design. So yes, uh, last year we had a big push with an initiative called Data 2020, where we started to build up a, a database to, to collect data and everything to base our decisions more on data. The thing is, the data is always limited to a certain extent. Data can always tell us only the what. The game designer needs to define and find out the why is something happening. Um, but yes, data is very important. It's playing a big role here at Coolie Games. I really like that acronym there. That's going to be very easy to remember. Yeah, so I also can agree that um, data plays a very big role. I think, but I would um, hesitate to say that it decides our decision, like that it uh, pushes our decision. Like it's not technically data driven, it's data informed, which means we do basically, you as a game designer basically design a feature expecting a certain outcome. And what data is basically there to tell you is if that outcome that you expected actually is the outcome that occurred, or if there is something within that progression, for example, where you can see it isn't happening as I intended it to be happening which I thought would be the most engageable thing for the player. And then you, it basically shows you there is a problem there and it's your job to figure out what the problem is and to push it back on the path that you initially intended to have. Say somebody wants to become a, a game designer um, and that's their, their, their dream. Um, and they want to, uh, they're listening to this podcast and they're thinking like, okay, well, you know, I have played a lot of games and, you know, I know a little bit about, about programming or, or I know a little bit about art or something. Um, you know, I, maybe I'm considering going to school or something like this. What would you recommend, A, as like how you become a game designer? Um, and I think some, some of your own um, backgrounds and stories here will be um, kind of informing this. And also, like, what skills do you need to be a game designer? I think today it's tougher to become a game designer than before. Before there was no real definition of a game designer. Game designers were more like from different disciplines, different backgrounds. Let's say you studied philosophy, you studied architecture, and then you just happen to be, hey, there's a gaming company that wants to make a uh, city building. Ah, oh, okay, this is this is lucky. Today, yes, uh, the designer is, is very defined what he needs to do, he or she, like high level, low level, level design, economy design, UX design, and all those things. So yes, there are schools. My recommendation is just try to know about everything. Watch all the movies, read all the books, play all the games. If you don't have that much time, of course, this is a lifelong achievement. You always try to catch up with everything. Build up your base knowledge. Let's say if you know you are into mobile games, 
in a certain strong rate and try to play as many games of the strong rate to just know what is happening in the industry. This is super, super important is um, the hard skills. They're always baseline. Um, I would say like everything you learn in school, like we mentioned balancing, what is good balancing, working Excel, having the math knowledge, the math skills. Um, creativity is something uh, that can come from within you, but it can also be trained. There are techniques, how to brainstorm, for example. And talk to people from the industry, talk to other game designers, try to connect with them, go to those events to see like, okay, how are they in, in real life? What is their Vita? Read Vitas of successful game designers. At least this is my, my take on that. Bjorn, what's your take? What's, uh, what are the necessary skills and background for a aspiring game designer? Yeah, so Boris already mentioned the first part. I think the, one of the most important parts of you as a game designer is to play a lot of games, also play a lot of different games. Like you might not be interested in shooters and are more interested into 4X games, but even though you should still be playing shooters, because basically seeing those shooters and analyzing those shooters is a certain amount of experience you're basically gaining and you're broadening your knowledge of design skills. And um, the second level that I that you can basically do after like playing these games and like playing through those games or while you're playing through those games is to actually analyze those games. So what are the decisions that a designer did while designing these games? Like if you if you walk into a game and you see the way, for example, recoil works, like is a recoil always the same on a gun or is it different? Is there some randomization in it? And then if you notice that, then you can ask yourself the question, why did they do it? Which effect actually does it take in the game? And who is it basically uh, designed for? And we're going through those games and analyzing these different aspects. You basically start to learn about game design before you actually done anything yourself. The next step would be even after you've done all of that is to actually do it yourself, design something yourself, because then you basically face the decisions, the hardships that they had in, the, in other games. Maybe you noticed something that seemed odd in the game, you analyze and you feel like, why did they do it that way? I wouldn't have done it that way. But if you design yourself, you might notice why they designed it the way that you thought would be odd. Does being a game designer take the fun out of playing games? <laughs> I mean, because you're talking about analyzing the recoil on, on shooters. And I have to say, sometimes I, I, I open up a game, I, even in the industry, I open it up and I just like want to just like enjoy it <laughs> and not think about it too hard. Do you guys feel like that's something that happens where you can't enjoy it without analyzing every piece? I think there are two different kinds of games. They're the games we, we play for work, for research and so on, and that we are more analytical about it. And then there are games we actually also play for recreation, recreational purpose. And that's usually very different games. Uh, but even playing the games we do for work, they are still games. So they are also still make fun, even though we analyze like, okay, why did they do, uh, they design a tutorial in a certain way or, ah, okay, the difficulty is behaving that way. But we, at, at least speaking for me, I can still enjoy them. But again, in private, usually I play other games. I try to be as far away, like playing board games, for example. Yeah, I, I can only agree there. So it, I, I have to mention, though, in addition to it, that you will always be analyzing more than you used to before you started all of this. Like, if you see a happy road and a dark skeleton road, you already know that on the skeleton road, there's definitely going to be stronger enemies. But there's probably also treasure at the end of it, because that's the purpose where you do it. And you, you, you subconsciously will basically notice these kind of scenarios and will always analyze it partially. 
obviously not to the extent that you would normally do with like games you actually plan to analyze. So games you have for recreation will always notice some things. But I think even that is kind of part of the fun because you you just you basically just explore a little bit more into the background. You see more of the background story of the game that someone else's mind basically made up. And I think that's also part of the fun. Like it's not as deep as actually writing uh, analysis of the game, but I think it's still fun. Uh, the games you basically play for recreation and notice these kind of interesting twists that you wouldn't have normally noticed. And don't forget, game designers are also gamers. We always try to also see their perspective. So we also want to be entertained. Along those lines, like, um, you know, outside of the games you're playing and, and um, you know, maybe these hard skills, are there other like non-gaming media or, or experiences that have influenced your design? Like, are you drawing from, you know, from things outside of gaming in general when you're making, um, when you're doing your work? I would say yes. Um, it's partly, let's say, all the experiences we, we, we collected through our life, they will always influence your work. It depends on what you're right now doing, what your task is. Let's say if you're designing a complete new game and then it's, let's say, hotel or hospital theme, you will always tap into if you have experienced that. And because you want to, if it's a simulation, for example, and it needs to be as real as possible, you're tapping into those experiences, right? Okay. How did I feel when I was a kid in a hospital? Or I don't know if, if it's a shooter, did I ever hold a gun in my hand? So you will always, or I'm always tapping into those experiences. Yeah, I also agree mostly. If you may, for example, we are, we are working on a firefighter game, right? And the goal of the firefighter game is to feel like you're a, a firefighter. Like you, you, have that, you have that fantasy of being a fire firefighter. And then you obviously think, about what do you know about firefighters? What do they actually do in real life? What do you know from movies? What is like the, the pictured form that we basically, that like the common per person basically sees? And you try to basically capture that and make them feel that. So obviously you draw inspirations from a lot of different sources, from like books, movies, series. And uh, you, you think about what are they doing in those series? How can I make the player experience that? I just I wanted to to add to what Björn just said about like uh, when I said early game designers are also gamers they are also role players. You need to put yourself into those shoes of okay this game is about firefighting. What would a firefighter actually do? So you need to put yourself into those shoes. Yeah, I could see I could see how like the need to empathize with you know a variety of different um, agents there probably probably is also like a big skill that um, um, maybe game designers need to have. Or you have to be thinking about like who are who are the characters, right? Like who, what are the motivated decisions that somebody will will have to make? Um, because I think it's it's really easy, right, to abstract a lot of what's happening when you're trying to make a game. You're like, well, I need to have you know, especially um, maybe in free to play. Well, I need to have like loops, and I need to have uh, um, a meta, and I need to encourage people to use this hard currency. Uh, and so if you just like had a robot do it, perhaps a robot would say like, well, you know, somebody has to um, walk from here to there. Let's like, you know, let's make this part of like the, let's charge them for that or something like this. But it might not make any sense in an actual like free to, free to play or in a, just like a, the real world. And I think, I think what you're saying is that, you know, having an idea of what the characters or what the, um, I guess like pieces in the game are would be doing in the, with their real world counterparts since we base everything mostly on, on the real world um, is, is a really important thing to keep in mind when you're making 
um, your game decisions, um, especially since we have like relatively realistic games here at Colibri. Like our subject matter are, are things that are present um, in the real world, as opposed to say like, you know, kind of like fantasy or magic or things like that, where it's, it's, it's maybe um, a, a little bit harder to find like actual counterparts in, in the world, right? We're not making games about wizards where like wizards might have their own motivation and, and magic has its own internal logic, but it's about things that, um, you know, are maybe more tangible for, for actual players. So wizards, not yet, but you're fully, fully right about like, you need to have a rule set that is within consistent. You can have something that changes. That's for example, how sci-fi works, right? Usually it's based on real world and then it just changed like, okay, we are now living on a planet with two suns, but then it still needs to be consistent within a system. Okay. What happens to a planet when there are two suns or temperature, for example, this is what game the same. Like if you have like, okay, you are now a firefighter. Um, okay. This is rather realistic scenario. So, okay, you need to do the research, what kind of technology is existing. It's the same when you're designing a game for a city builder, what kind of architecture, how are cities built, like all the power lines and everything that needs to follow realistic rules. Otherwise, uh, a, a gamer would not really connect with the game because it's not intuitive. Is it because of the first thing that you said when it came to uh, easy to learn uh, and hard to master? Like part of that easy to learn is that there's intuitive elements to it that a player will immediately grasp. For instance, like getting money is good, right? Generally speaking, I think I've played very few games where you're where you're not where you're not supposed to be earning money. One game I've played where you're supposed to only be spending it and lose lose money the entire time. You are absolutely right. So yes, we're tapping into this those common knowledge. And if you break with the consistency uh, as a game designer, then as, as you just said with the example of there, you know only one instance where earning money is bad. Those, this breaking of consistency is then on purpose to teach the user something or having an interesting twist. So that was one game I, I felt like was just, whoa, this is really cool. Um, do you guys have um, instances where you experience something in a game? It doesn't have to be a Colibri game in this case, but where you experience something in any game that made you think like, wow, that's, that's like, that's crazy. Like I never thought to like do anything like this. That's, that's a pretty amazing um, stroke of game design. I, 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 I still take Frostpunk for that one. So Frostpunk is basically a game where it's post-apocalyptic. So you basically lost entire humanity. The world basically freezes and enters another ice age. And you're, it's basically a city building game, like a uh, survival building game, where you have like a core generator that generates heat while the world is permanently cooling down. And you're trying to like build a city to make people survive, obviously, because like we are close to being all frozen in stone. And what I really like about the game, where I thought like I never would have taken that route. And it's one of the things that makes it so great is there are policies which you enact to basically unlock new gameplay mechanics. It's some similar to the skill tree is super controversial because the usual decisions that you would make in being, being born in society and knowing how society works would be like the humanitarian's decision. Like if you have to have children's work, have them work in hospital, it's safe, right? And what that game does is to build a utopia is the most difficult path you can take in uh, this approach. The best path you can take 
is making uh, enacting child labor and making them work in mines because you need more people to harvest those resources. And you have the decision to like people that, that, that you had to amputate legs from or arms from due to the cold, you can decide to kill them so they're not part of society anymore and therefore take your food. And, and, and that is the better play, way to play. But I think this is like one of the most genius things and very interesting to basically weigh your morale of doing a certain thing versus the advantage it brings in the game. That sounds pretty wicked. I feel like I have to play that now. Yeah, I suppose something that like really plays with your your sense of like what is right and wrong. Like that's that's one of those cases where it's just like the complete, complete opposite. Boris, how about you? For me, I think it was The Last of Us 2 from Naughty Dog. It's a game about a post-pandemic scenario. Maybe not the best thing to play a after-pandemic game during a pandemic. Um, it's a very narrative, uh, story-driven game. And I had many, many, holy cow, this is amazing moments. Um, simply from the story, from the, from the world that is built, it really feels real. Um, and it just created so many emotions and also hate and, and torture, but I couldn't stop playing the game because of the decisions. So the decision-making here was also very interesting, where at the end, also, whoa, wow, this was like where I realized, hey, games are also to a certain extent art uh, because it changed something in me. It like created emotions. I thought, perceived things differently. I don't want to spoil the game too much. Um, just on a high level, you, there are two characters. You play the main character from the first part um, and there's an obvious villain. But along, along the way of the game, you actually switch sides and then you play from the perspective of the villain and then realize, wait a minute, this person is not just simply a villain. I understand the reasoning of that character. And that's just blew my mind at a moment. Like, And also very controversial because the community is really split 50-50. Either they hate The Last of Us 2 or they love it. So, And this is also great. And this is also for me art. It's creates discussion and you're, you're discussing like, why do you think the designers did that choice and so on? That reminds me of a movie I saw where uh, it took, it was a zombie movie, but it was from the perspective of the zombies. Warm bodies. Yeah, warm bodies, exactly. <laughs> Which is it's just like, I had never, I had never thought that like something like that would be um, uh, possible in a zombie movie where you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess it is tough to be a zombie. Um, I, I'll, I'll try not to, I don't know, uh, take too many axes to their, their heads next time there's a uh, zombie outbreak. I mean, I'm not... I'll think about it a little bit more. Yeah, I wouldn't say that uh, Warm Bodies is the best zombie movie, but this is a great example of what a game designer should try to achieve. Always see different perspectives to come up with new ideas, with new games, with new mechanics. So yes, even putting yourself into the shoes of a zombie from time to time. So now we're going to do a quick speed round to uh to get these guys perspective on things uh so without further ado coke or pepsi coke pepsi and uh great what is your um mixed together um what is your favorite game bjorn black desert what of warcraft would you rather have new clothes or a new phone new clothes new phone what is your favorite animal a tiger dinosaur which dinosaur uh obviously velociraptor if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Mind reading. Super speed. Super speed. <laughs> nice. Well, guys, unfortunately, we are at the end of our, our time together today. Um, I really want to thank you for taking a little bit of time out to do this podcast today. I know that our listeners 
are absolutely going to adore some of the subjects we covered. We covered a lot of ground um, from how we do game design here to how to get into the industry um, and what game design really is. I feel like we could spend several hours talking about all of those things, but I'm glad that you were able to condense it. So thank you guys so much for joining us today. Nate, thank you. Thank you for my side as well. Again, thanks for having us. It was a great time. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to share with a friend. And make sure to follow us on social media and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to get in touch and find out more about the types of topics that you'd like to hear about and what would be most interesting for you. And you can catch us again in two weeks' time for the next episode. Bye. Bye.